0: Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moizel, and these are the Women Who Rule. Welcome back to She Dynasty. This week, I am so excited to welcome Lisa Ross to our podcast. Lisa is the United States CEO of Edelman, and Edelman is the largest communications firm in the world. First of all, welcome to She Dynasty. Welcome to our podcast. Thank you. And I um, I love
1: the platform of She Dynasty. I think it's so important. Communication and community is is sort of intrinsic to me. And um, I love to see the creation, the curation of these types of things, because I think that they are so incredibly important. So this platform is an opportunity for me to spread the gospel of you can work you can do well by doing uh, good. You can lift people up and bring them along with you. So this is just an opportunity for me to help create a culture that I will feel really comfortable about leaving. Um, I'm not dying or anything, but I'm not going to work for the rest of my life. And so where I have opportunities to um, imbue this way of thinking, I I welcome it. So let's, let's do it.
0: Awesome. All right. Well, I'm just going to jump right in. I'm going to talk a little bit about your role now, but then we're going to kind of rewind back into um, your history and your past and where it all started. So I'm going to start by by saying, obviously, you are the CEO of the largest um, PR communications firm in the world. That's a huge responsibility. Obviously, there's a lot of people kind of looking up to you. And I know that you've um, you know recently taken this role, though, you've been at the company for a little while longer than that. Um, so it's already a huge responsibility but at the same time you've had to do it during a pandemic and all that's happened with you know the george floyd situation and unfortunately you know what's happened there and i just want to hear you know from your perspective what it's like to take on a role of this magnitude at this time in history
1: you're just going to think i'm crazy when i say it's actually been a gift but realistically and honestly um Last year was, and I told Richard Adelman, uh, my boss, that last year was the hardest year of my professional career, hands down. Um, I came into the COO role, and two weeks later, COVID hit. And so, trying to prepare our community, our colleagues, our clients to not just survive, but to thrive in that environment was you know, hard. It was very, very difficult. So we finally kind of got that under control. And then um, I call it the murder of George Floyd. George Floyd was murdered. Absolutely. And uh, the conversations that were so long awaited um, and so desperately needed in our country and worldwide about racial equity um, were significant. And me in the very unique position of being in the C-suite in um, a white company, in a white world, and I am a Black woman, and the responsibility and what I call the beautiful burden of that was very difficult. But I feel like we came out of it so much stronger and so much better and so much more prepared for the future in front of us. So it was tough um i'm not gonna lie about how hard it was and and i was comfortable in my tears you know I, there were times where and and i showed emotion uh with my colleagues on you know global calls on u.s calls um, with richard with uh i don't think i cried with my clients i'd like to think i had some dignity uh but uh but i did show emotion and it was hard but I think by showing emotion, I allowed other people to feel what they were feeling, but to also push forward. Absolutely, and so how did it impact some of your leadership goals for Edelman? It made us, A, recommit ourselves to equity of all kinds, sustainability, racial, social, human equity, and opportunity, it forced us to recommit. Um, It forced um, our leaders, to recognize into for me to articulate in no uncertain terms what the expectation was from them in this very dynamic and changing environment. And that was the expectation was take care of your colleagues, take care of your clients and take care of your community. And that's how we're going to evaluate the success of this. I wanted, I said, when all this happened, let's, let's go to the end game and then work backwards. And for me, I wanted Edelman to be able to say, we were there for our clients. And I wanted our clients to say, my Edelman folks were there. I wanted my colleagues to say, shit, this was hard, but Edelman took care of me. And because of our size, because of our responsibility that you talked about earlier, um, because of our role in the industry, it was also important to me that we can say, and we were there for our community. And I can talk about almost market by market, the things that we did um, to support our community. So like many terrible things, I feel like we learned a lot and um, pain is never wasted. If you learn something from it, you know, you take it into your next engagement because, you know, it's something else is going to happen, too.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, obviously, um, I I run a company much smaller than the one you run, but But significant and real. Yeah, yeah. yeah, The material. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, but, you know, obviously the responsibility, you know, no matter how big or small you are as a company is, you know, falls on everyone and us internally trying to figure out how we can make an impact, you know, was important as well. And we kind of look up to the bigger corporations and companies to learn um, and take those ideas and do them, you know, obviously on a smaller scale, but, you know, just a message out there to everyone listening that it's really important for everyone to do their part. It doesn't matter how big or small yes. you are.
1: Absolutely. And even for individuals, so certainly for organizations, but even for individuals within an organization, you know, like there is a misnomer that everything starts at the top. Because I know having been in leadership positions and similar to the one I am now, you can govern from the top. You can start it at the top, at the top, but it can fall apart in the middle. If people are not engaged and if they don't see the value to change and they don't see the value to some of the things. And I think one of the things that I, I love about Edelman and, and the leadership roles that we have taken on in the industry and in, in our community is a recognition that you can do well by doing good. Our mantra, our business is uh, to drive change and to work with corporations and brands who want to drive change, who want to make something better. And obviously, you know, profit is not a bad thing. Um, And, but I have always believed if you put people first, profitability will follow. And um, if you have the right partners, you can sit back at the end of, you know, a couple of month period and say, I did this, I did this with my client, I did this with my client and we're making a difference in the world. And I know it sounds like, so like I should put a little pink hat on my head and uh, because it sounds like a little Pollyanna-ish, but I believe in it and, and I see the change that's that we are driving. I see the change we're driving.
0: Well, I'm excited to see where you take the company and all the great change that you continue to do. All right, so we are going to now rewind because again, so much of She Dynasty is about how you got to where you are Mm -hmm. because about mentorship and um, helping people learn. And, you know, we want to hear the good and the bad and the ugly and some of the mistakes and all of the, all, everything in between. So, you know, those, we all know that those are some of the most defining um, moments and learning moments. So I want to start with your childhood. I understand that you were raised in DC and uh, as you put it in the bastion of black excellence. So tell us more about that experience and exactly what that means.
1: You may or may not recall, but DC used to be called chocolate city. Uh, And it was called Chocolate City because um, our first mayor was, uh, you know, it's it's still sort of a federal city because there's no state's rights. Um, But for the longest time, uh, even the mayor was selected by the federal government. So my dad was part of the first administration um, to actually run the city where people were actually elected the mayor. So, I, so it's always in my system. My parents are two HBCU grads who met at Howard University at a, um, at a football game. They both honestly believed that, and they told us that we have the responsibility to make a change in the world in which we operated. And they gave us all the resources that were necessary. They sent us to the best schools. Um, I have said that, um, and I love that you focus on the root Because the root is so important. And for me, you know, I say I was born of love and was created and nurtured in an environment of love, but tough love too. I have always had a big, sometimes too big for some uh, personality that my parents actually fostered and they embraced. One of my favorite stories about my mom and dad was there was a women's penitentiary That was um, on the way we went to um, uh, a church that we used to go to in downtown DC, and I'm sure I was like every Sunday I was doing something I wasn't supposed to, and my mother would say, "You keep it up, and you're going to end up right there." And she would like point it out on the (laughs) road. She was like, "You're going to end up right there," and you know we're traditional families, and my father's driving, my mother's in the passenger seat, my brother and I are in the back. And my father would say, without missing a beat, he said, but she's going to run that shit when she's in there too. <laughs> and it was just like my favorite, but my parents you know, taught me that and they fostered it. And I was educated by, I went to all girls prep school. Um, the nuns were feminist nuns. Uh, and then um, I went to Marquette University. I bleed blue and gold, go bucks. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> And so I just have been very fortunate to have been placed in situations where people required a lot from me, but also convinced me that I could and should give everything.
0: Love that. And what was one of your earliest memories of what you wanted to be when you you grew up?
1: I wanted to be a lawyer when I grew up. And I now look at the roots of that. And for me, the thing that gets me going is problem solving. Like, I love, I absolutely love Valerie to, like, be with the client and, like, just start noodling it. I'm sure you do the same thing where you're like, huh, let's take a look at this opportunity. Let's take a look at this problem. Is the opportunity as real as it appears to be? Is the problem as significant as you feel it right now? And so I think my interest in law is rooted in my interest in problem solving and my interest in my firm, like organic belief in equity, right? And for me, law was a way to sort of balance things out and to um, provide an equal playing field for everyone to participate. So that's what I wanted to do. But then early on, I've always loved to write. And um, so I chose journalism and political science, and I never looked back.
0: I love it. And so after, um, so just now fast forwarding a little bit. So after college, one of your very first jobs was a very, a fairly controversial job. And, and when I read the story, I had a similar story. So I really want to dig into this. You worked with um, the Tobacco Institute. So tell us what was, you know, what that, about that organization and about that experience.
1: So the reason I took the job, this shows you how naive I was. Um, I, so I talked about how close I was to my parents. My father was diagnosed with cancer my senior year in college. Um, I was the last of four, the only girl. And he said, I'll see you graduate, but I can't guarantee anything after that. And he didn't. He saw me graduate in May, he died in September. So I was sort of adrift. And um, I took a bunch of different like telemarketing jobs. My mother and I traveled for a bit. And then she was like, okay, this is over. You need to get a job. So um, I saw this you know, this ad, and when I came into interview, um, I had an office with a window, and I was like, sure, I'll take it. I'm 23. I want this job, and really didn't even know what it was about, and so I revealed that because, I mean, we're all so ambitious, but straight up, sometimes you do stuff for varying reasons, and I took this job because of that. Um, It may have been, besides this one, the best job I've ever had because it taught me the principles that I abide by now. Uh, Issues are complex. They are rarely black and white. There has to be balance in conversation. People should have the information they need to make the choices that are important to them. And and in everything that appears to be dark, there is often some light. So within the Tobacco Institute, I ran the fire safety program. Okay. And so um, as a result of three years of fire safety, we were able to exponentially reduce the number of um, fires caused by careless smoking. Oh, wow. Interesting. Right. Okay. Right. And so people don't think about that when they think about the Tobacco Institute, but that's the program that I ran. And I was a uh, 23-year-old Black girl going into environments with, uh, in an industry that was overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male, and overwhelmingly um, older. Mm-hmm. And um, so I learned everything that I know about communications and activism from that job. And I also met my husband of 30 years there too. So it was it had added, added benefit.
0: Awesome. You know, I have a, a similar but different story. You know, years ago, um, I think you know this, but I run an advertising agency. But I was invited yeah. to—I was invited to pitch um, at a very big tobacco company. And you know, my initial reaction—I I was um, a smoker when I was younger, mm-hmm. about five years, and you know, kind of early college, um, and finally quit. And then I was invited to this pitch, and you know, I was at a point in my career where. Wow, this would be a big win for the agency. Do I do this? I don't believe in it. It was a really like difficult yeah. hard time to be in and there were some other people on my team who felt very strongly that it was important for the agency and I had to, you know, kind of put my own personal feelings aside. I was the one who was really kind of hesitant about going in and pitching it. And, you know, I went forward with it and the oh. whole time I remember going there and flying cross country to New Jersey and, you know, just the whole time, just being so miserable with the decision. It was just, yeah, it just didn't feel, you know, good. It didn't feel good. And the good news is we didn't win. And I was so relieved. And for me, me, it was such a learning moment. And from that moment, I've never, you know, I've, because for me, it was the opposite. I was marketing. I was actually asked to market cigarettes. Mm. Yeah. To young adults. And, you know, I just, it was just a, a learning moment of like, you know, starting now, if something doesn't feel right to the core of who I am, and I was just young and immature and I didn't have the voice or the strength to be able to speak up. But, you know, I'm proud to say that now I have turned down things that just don't feel right to me anymore. And, you know, for those listening, you know, there will be times in your career when you're young and you have to make hard decisions and it's hard to know what to do sometimes.
1: Oh but- my God. I wish our listeners could see the anguish that was on your face when you were telling that story. And like, I literally felt myself sitting next to you on the flight <laughs> and holding your hand. And we've all been in that situation. And I think you're right. I think what we learn is if you have that much angst about something, it is probably not the right thing. And yeah. to have the bravery uh, to say no, you know, it's, it's t- you have to be brave to say yes, but you also have to be brave to say no.
0: Yep. And I learned that in that moment and I'm, I'm relieved I didn't win, but what I did learn from it is, you know, there are times when you just say no and it's okay. And it's not about the money. And if it's not a fit for you to who your core values are and what you believe in, you've got to just stand up for what you believe in. It's really important.
1: And Valerie, the other thing I love about your story is you made a decision that you would have made differently later. And so it's also a reminder that like you can change. It is okay to change. We were talking about something the other day and somebody said, we're backpedaling. I said, we're not backpedaling, we're evolving. It is okay to change. If you have additional information, if your heart changes on something, if you feel it's okay to have done something at one point in your career and in your life and then to say, you know what? That's not right for me anymore. And I'm not gonna do that. And we don't give ourselves or others enough license in my opinion to do that.
0: Correct. People grow and they learn and they change and they evolve and you know values become clearer as you get older. And and, think... and Valerie, and sometimes they don't. And sometimes it... <laughs> yes,
1: and sometimes people do not
0: grow and do not change and do not evolve. And I'm glad that you and I are. Thank you. All right. So after that, after the Tobacco Institute, you spent several years with Fleishman Hillard as a senior consultant. And yeah. then you took an incredibly cool position. You were communications director for the Clinton administration during a very interesting time. And I also have another parallel here because I know it was during the whole Monica Lewinsky um, yeah. situation. Um, yeah. Yeah. I, I went to high school with Monica Lewinsky. Oh, wow, okay. So, so I know her very personally, which you know obviously takes it to it. We went to a yeah. very, very small private school. Um, Uh, So you really know her. Yeah. When I say small, I think um, we had 20 people in my class. Wow. So so when I say small, we spent a lot of time together. So, yeah, but I'd love to hear from, you know, from your perspective, what you were doing there and, you know, obviously how that situation impacted what you were doing and if you were involved at all.
1: Yeah. Let me, let me tell you also how I got there because I think it's relevant for our listeners and for a lot of what we're trying to accomplish with Xi Dynasty, and that is to give women the power and the platforms to do what they think is right. You know, Tobacco Institute was intense. Uh, I left because I married my, um, my colleague who was going to be my boss, and so I went to Fleischmann. Um, uh, Fleischmann was an absolutely wonderful experience because what, what I learned there complexity is what I learned at the Tobacco Institute. Um, at Fleishman, I learned the importance of like this no problem approach to problem solving. Like I'll just figure it out. Like in one of the worst and best things about working with me is that I kind of believe everything is possible. And I got that at Fleishman. It's like, I think we can figure that out. It's like, it looks impossible, but I think we can do it. But I got married at Fleishman. I had my kids at Fleishman and you know agency work as you know is intense and it can be 24 7 and so when this opportunity presented itself for me to go to the administration i was super excited about it it was 10 times quieter than being at an agency oh, wow. so i thought that that's what i needed and that i wanted But I found within months that I was so bored, I thought I was going to lose my mind. And um, about that time, I'm sure you've heard of the Federal Glass Ceiling Commission. And so um, it's a a bipartisan commission that looks at what we're still studying, the barriers that prevent women and people of color from advancing um, in corporations. And um, I became friendly with the woman who was leading it. And then um, my agency was kind of quiet and kind of sleepy. So um, I ended up working with her and my mother, who was my muse and my mentor and my inspiration for everything wonderful, said to me, if you're doing all that work, get a job there, get a title, you know, put yourself in position so you're not just helping. She said, you know, this is your personal capital. This is your time and your energy. Make sure that it's recorded. And so I went to Renee Redwood, who was the uh, head of the commission. And she was like, I'm the chair, you be the deputy chair. And so we did it. And it was just fantastic. From there, I went to the Clinton White House. Um, I was there during the Monica Lewinsky um, debacle. I'm gonna choose my words very carefully here. Um, For me, my greatest frustration was it became such a distraction. We were on the cusp of just being one of the best, um, most productive, not since Lyndon Johnson, who's right. my favorite my favorite president. He's my presidential crush of just like driving, just getting things done. And we lost, we lost everything as a result of that. Like we were lame ducks after. And so my frustration besides the obvious, uh, the inappropriate relationship and the behavior um, was like, Jesus, now like everything we were trying to do for the country is in jeopardy. And so my greatest frustration was, it was, and was anger at that. And, um, and I never took it as personally as some of my colleagues did. I was with, I was on, and while I was on vacation a couple of weeks ago, I reconnected with um, a bunch of women that I worked with in the women's office at the white house. And they, of course, were, we were, of course, were in the middle of it. And I never took it that personally. I was more angry and frustrated because I'm a pragmatist and I'm like, this is getting in the way of the job that I came here to do. Um, Of course, appalled by it, but I was just, I was like pissed and annoyed.
0: Yeah. It's not what you signed up for, obviously. Yeah. And it was
1: stupid. It was like, this is like, this was an avoidable, like this is stupid and it's getting in the way of all the great stuff that we are trying to do. But I I will also say, I was thinking about this when you were talking about your moral dilemma when you were traveling across country. I worked, as as you noted, I think, at the women's office at the White House, which was newly created there. And um, on a particular night, and these ladies and I were talking about this a few weeks ago, um, it was the night before the president was signing the late-term abortion legislation. And, you know, like, you know, regardless of your position, um, that's that's hard. That is a really, really tough one. and. Um, it was late and I went out to get some air and I recognized my family priest who had since become a bishop. And, you know, I hugged him and he hugged me and he said, oh, Lisa, we're all so proud of you. And your mom told us about your fancy new job. And this is so fantastic. And I was like, oh my God, it's so awesome. I was like, well, my office is right there. And um, I said, and what are you doing out here? And Then I looked around, Valerie, and paid attention to my surroundings. And it wasn't just one priest. It was like a gazillion of them. Uh, And I remember it was raining because it was like all of these black umbrellas. And he said, as you know, the president is poised to sign uh, this legislation tomorrow. And we are here protesting. And man, God, that thing gutted me. Oh, it gutted me, gutted me. And I, you know, I had to go back to work. And I had to go back into my office with my colleagues who were preparing for this uh, announcement. And so I think all of us at a point in our careers, like you've got these pivotal moments where like something happens that really challenges your beliefs and your core values. And you're trying to do what's right for some, but it might not be right for others. And it's hard. It's hard. And I felt it acutely and I haven't thought about it. Uh, Recently, it's interesting, obviously, because I saw these ladies, I thought about it. But then when you told your story, I almost reimagined myself in that courtyard with these priests.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's also harder, you know, it depends where you are in your career. Obviously, as you kind of move up, you know, the ranks, um, you know, I think you have the confidence. And, you know, when you're younger in your career, there's just a lot of pressure from different places. And, you know, it's just sometimes it's hard. It's not easy sometimes to, you know, to know what to do. So,
1: yeah. And even when you're told... You don't have to do this. You don't have to work on. And I'm, I am super conscious of that now in a leadership position that Mm. the messages that we share, what we say and what we do. Mm. And, you know, we might say, you don't have to do that, Valerie, if you're not comfortable doing that, then don't do it. Um, And so I've gotten better about saying you actually do have to do that or you don't, but meaning what I say and saying what I mean, rather than doing that kind of, you know, unspoken thing.
0: Okay, that's a learning moment for me. I love that, thank you.
1: (laughs) Okay, awesome, great. That's
0: really cool, I love that. All right, so um, what was your one, you know, one or two big takeaways from your experience um, working with the Clinton administration?
1: The power of government. And my parents were civil servants, and so um, that reinforced it to me. The power and the proper role of government balance. Uh, Those jobs are 24-7. I had two small children at the time and um, I didn't like the mother that I was during that period. And so I learned what motherhood and what parenting means to me and what type of parent I wanted to be, which is part of the reason I left. And um, I learned about the value of uh, different points of view in addressing really difficult situations. And that to this day, I only make decisions with people that I know will disagree with me. Mm. They have to be included in my decision-making process. And sometimes I'm sitting there just like, oh, God, I do not want to hear what you have to say. (laughs) But I know I have to hear what you have to say because that's the only way I can make an informed decision is if I have multiple points of view. That's great. Um, So those are the three things that, that, that I learned there.
0: All right, so after that, you kind of made a shift and uh, started working with Ogilvy. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what led you to that and give us a little bit of uh, what happened during your time there.
1: Well, I kind of went back to my roots, right? So the government thing was the anomaly for me because I've been a private industry person. Um, the move to Ogilvy was probably symptomatic of my approach for my professional career. Mm-hmm. I, this is not right for everybody. I don't make plans. I've never, oh my God. Uh, either. <laughs> listeners, Valerie is like that. I just, I literally, like, you know, I just don't. And I went, when I was at the Tobacco Institute, our two agencies, there were a lot of agencies, but one was Fleischman, one was Ogilvy. So I knew both of them. I went to Fleischman. And literally my husband saw Marsha Silverman, who by the way, is one of the most um, material consequential women leaders in the communications firm um, ever. Uh, she was the first woman to lead uh, the US operation for Ogilvy. She is a force. She ran to my husband on the train and she was like, what's Lisa going to do? And my husband said, you know, you know, Lisa, she's whatever. She kind of feels, she said, tell her she should come to Ogilvy. So we had lunch and I went to Ogilvy yeah. uh, and um, I was there for a long time. I don't even know how to begin to capture what I learned there. Um, when I was at Ogilvy, it was probably their strongest time frame as an agency. They were cutting edge. They were sparkly. They were fancy. They were uh, mission driven. Um, and a lot of this was more. What was your early. role there? What was your I role was, I, Well, you know, sort of. 13 years, I had many. I came in as a, a almost like I was supposed to come in as a, a client consultant, mm-hmm. like the person who's outside view, you know, Valerie, we all want this where it's like, I need somebody who's not associated with the work to look at the work and tell us what we're doing wrong. That is a luxury in an agency. And it became clear that that was not a luxury that we I was going to be afforded. So I, uh, over time I did community work I did multicultural and we created a multicultural practice. I did advocacy work. And then I eventually um, led the public affairs practice, which is my background and which was my greatest interest. Um, When, again, I was there, Ogilvy, some of my best friends from life are from Ogilvy. Um, I just hired a a guy that I met at Ogilvy to come to Edelman to lead our federal practice. Um, And so I learned about the importance of, using resources effectively at Ogilvy. We worked on campaigns like the Heart Truth campaign. We looked, we raised awareness of, colorectal cancer among men and particularly men of color. I represented the NCAA when I was there. I Southland Corporation, um, the regional Bell operating companies for those who even remember when there were other phones besides this, but the transition from um, landlines to mobile phones was a big issue I worked on for many years. I represented Anheuser-Busch I did a little bit of everything and, but I was also simultaneously, and you and I did not establish um, our personal lives, but I've established that I'm married and I have two children, but my timeframe at Ogilvy was, uh, I was also raising my children at a really critical point. And my mother, who I've already talked about was aging. And so I spent 13 years living worlds that I had to collide in order to get through it. Like my personal and my professional had to collide in order for me to get through it. And I think too often we parents, caregivers, women in particular, try to separate them out and it's too hard. It was too hard for me anyway. And so I put them together and it was much easier for me.
0: That's nice to hear. You know, I have two, I have two teenage daughters, one who's about to, uh, apply to college. So we're going through that craziness. And, you know, as a working mother who, you know, owns a, a company, it's obviously been a challenge like it is for any, right. and I often have, you know, a lot of guilt because, you know, I either sometimes I'm either like, I'm totally setting these kids up for success because they see what it takes to to make it yeah. or I'm like, they're going to wait, you know, they're going to grow up and just like need to see a therapist every day. And I can't figure out which one it is, you know, or maybe it's something in between. Right. It's a challenge that so many of the women I, I talked to on She Dynasty um, face, and you know I just want to you know kind of hear from your perspective. Did you feel like you found a good balance during that time?
1: One of the nicest things that my colleagues at Ogilvy said about me: everybody knew that my family was my priority, and it's hard. Look, I'm not going to lie; you know it. Uh, you got two teenage girls, my children are both adults now, um, and um, it's really, really hard, but I was, I have always been clear that I will walk out of a room and I have walked out of a room. Um, um, as I said, my mother was aging and and ailing at the time and the number of times the hospital would call or something happened. I was like, I'm out. I have to do this. I go, I have to go take care of this. Um, I think something for me, um, many mothers, we are conditioned to believe that those early years are like, you have to be there for me, it was like when they were teenagers and when they were adults, that's when they really needed you. And that coincided with my time with Ogilvy. You know, my mother and father were like, led the school bazaar. Right, and right, right. were the parent-teacher meeting coordinators and Cub Scouts and Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts. And so I grew up believing that you can do it all.
0: Did you um, did you carry that tradition on for your kids? Were you leading yeah, the meetings? and Yeah,
1: absolutely. And my kids... My, my kids think that I hang the moon. It's the most important. My, my, um, in my eulogy, it will be said, Lisa was an extraordinary daughter. Uh, Lisa was the best mother ever, and she was a pretty solid wife. Like, I just couldn't nail all three of them. Um, but, you know, my, my husband heard me say that one time. He was like, hey, eight plus there. I can you <laughs> do an eight plus. And I was like, well, you're an easy grader and I appreciate it. But, um, you know, I, you can't do it all at the same time well. I for me, I, I hate these generalizations. But for me, once I realized that I couldn't for, for a period of time, my priorities were caring for my mother and being there for my kids. And to this day, my kids, they grew up, like they were super proud of me and yeah. they came to work with me and they knew Bill Clinton and, you know, they, they were part of my life and um, they're proud of me as a result of it. But it was hard, no doubt it was hard.
0: I love to hear that. I also understand that during this time, um, you did um, unfortunately lose your mother. I'm sorry to hear that tell us about the, uh, the impact that had on you. Obviously you guys were very close. You mentioned earlier that she was your inspiration and a mentor. Um, you know, how, how do you function after something like that happens when someone's so strong in your life is just not there anymore?
1: Well, you, you try to have a conversation without crying, <laughs> number one. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I suppose I've had enough time to not cry about it, but, um, I still do. Um, it's, you go on because if you had my mother, she'd be pissed if you didn't. Uh, And my mother made it so abundantly clear to me what her expectations were of me. And everything that I do, everything that I am is in homage to her. Um, My father died, as I said, the year I graduated from college. So he didn't know me as an adult. But my mother was uh, like everything. And my mother, when she, I said my mother was an HBCU grad. Technically, she never graduated because um, her family ran out of money um, her last semester. And so she never really got a chance to to graduate. And um, she was, um, we call the hidden, now we call her the hidden figures of HHS uh, because she was there at a time right when the civil rights legislation had been passed. She's a woman of color. And um, she just figured out automation like when nobody knew what it was. And when she retired, she was the highest ranking person of color at HHS in a career position. So I grew up seeing that. And Valerie, for my entire life, we could be out and about. My mother had a very distinctive voice. And somebody would say, is that Thelma Osborne? And they were like, and they would say to me, your mother told me not to chew gum in a meeting. Your mother pulled me aside and told me my dresses were too short. My, your mother uh, got me into a program where they paid for my graduate degree. Uh, your mother told me, and when her eulogy was given, one of her colleagues said, Thelma was a mentor before we knew what the word meant and what meant more to me uh, than anything that I could ever put into words was my entire team from Ogilvy was there at the church. And when we met afterwards, they were all like in a cabal, like sobbing. And I was like, you got to cry more than I am. And that's a lot. And um, they said, the eulogist described you. And you are living what your mother taught. And it's everything to me. It's everything to me to know that I am having an impact because I feel that that's what I was called to do. So I am um, doing fine with her passing because she would have it no other way, uh, because she prepared me for it. And because I believe that I am following in her footsteps of change and mentorship and guidance and direction and sponsorship. So, um, uh, the next time you ask me, maybe I won't burst into tears, uh, but uh, but okay. she's um, but I'm grateful to her every day.
0: Yeah, you know, um, a wise woman told me when my children were young, to tell my kids from a very young age that I had one expectation of them, only one. They could do whatever they wanted in their life, but there was one thing that they had to do, and that was always to make me proud. That's it. Yeah. And if you think about it it encompasses everything so it's kind of yeah. brilliant it's kind of brilliant right it's
1: kind of brilliant it's kind of brilliant i like every day i'm like this is for you i i i can do this because of you so i know she's still with me at some level and she would say i cannot believe you cried on that interview uh, <laughs> but then she would give me a big hug and pat my butt and tell me to go on and go back to work so
0: the fact that so many years have passed and in an instant, you know, that emotion comes up is, you know, just shows how strong your bond was and how strong she lives with inside you. So.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And she taught me how to mother. Yeah. She, she, she didn't just, you know, you know, this, she didn't teach me just how to operate at work and be the mentor that everybody talks about, but she taught me how to mother my daughter and how to mother my son. And it's different. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so across the board. And she taught me how to be a better wife. Like everything that I'm good at is because she taught me how. Understood.
0: All right. So after Ogilvy moving forward, um, you spent a year with APCO. Yeah, it's APCO. So tell us um, just quickly about APCO um, and then your transition of how that moved you on to Edelman. You know, everything's
1: timing. I went to APCO right after my mother died. So I think I was open and receptive to change. I'd been at Ogilvy for some period of time. Um, It was an opportunity to lead an office. Um, And APCO is truly an international firm. Mm -hmm. Like everything that they do is international. So it was a new experience for me to really lean into that part of my work. But we had some work to do in the office and in the organization. And I feel like once I started to complete that task, uh, I got a little nudgy and, um, Adelman called and, um, the opportunity to work with Richard, he may be one of the most brilliant visionary practitioners who in his heart of hearts believes that we're, we got to change the world And yep. I've been in rooms with him with global CEOs of fortune 20 companies. And he's like, "But what's your purpose? What problem are you solving with your product, with your service or whatever? And um, he also, and this may resonate with you, we just met, but I think this might resonate with you. He was the first boss I ever had who said, let your little light shine. You know, he was the first one who was like, I want you to be out there more. I want you to talk more. I want you to be more visible. I want you to communicate. I want you to really bring your full self to Edelman. And right. And like, right. And we just don't get that. Um, A lot of times, you know, people are very intimidated by strong personalities or intimidated by what some women are. It's not just men. Um, And he was the first person who was like, go do your thing and um, make a difference. And um, so I'm like, yeah. And that's literally, so, you know, I came in as the head of the DC office um, and then uh, maybe a year and a half was named COO. And then a year in the COO, a year short of the COO position was asked to um, be the CEO. And if you're going to ask this question, I was asked it recently, what's been your favorite job? I think it might be this one. It's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome.
0: So did you set your sights on being a CEO one day or does it just kind of evolve to that?
1: Never, never. I maybe should have, uh, (laughs) but I never did. It never even occurred to me. I mean, it's not like I was like, I'm not, it's not a false humility on any point, but as I said, I'm not a planner. Right. And so I was like, this feels good, so I'll do it. And when it doesn't feel good anymore, I stop. Right. And as long as something feels good and I'm learning and I'm contributing, I keep doing it when it doesn't have those assets, then I'm I'm gone. Um, and so I never thought about it. Obviously, I knew when I was named COO that that was the next move for me. But quite frankly, like, as I said, the year was so damn hard. I didn't have time to think about succession planning. I didn't have time to think about my next move. I was like just trying to get up and brush my teeth and you know, keep it going. Uh, when Matt Harrington and Richard asked me to do it, it was such an easy answer because I was given and have been given the authority and the resources to do what I think is best.
0: Nice. Yeah. I mean, they often say, um, you know, it's important to not only choose a job, but a boss. And it sounds like you found people who believed in you and yeah. are really letting your little light shine, as you said. So, yeah, yeah. I love it. Love to hear that was it intimidating or scary to take on a role so big, a title so big, or did it just feel like I got this? No problem.
1: Yeah. Like practically speaking, going from COO to CEO is not that big of a, it's like the buck stops with you. Right. And and quite frankly, I think I'm a better CEO than I was a COO, uh, if I'm honest with you. So, um, when I did have, just some natural like skepticism and doubts and not really doubts, but like I was trying to think through what I was going to do. And he said, you don't, you're not replacing anyone. You're starting something. And I think that was great counsel. And I I share it on this, in this conversation because I want other women to hear it. That so often we come into a new role and we look at what our predecessor has done. And we start thinking about that rather than giving ourselves and being given equally important, being given a clean slate to say, you come in and you do it the way you think. Um, And my superpower is um, I put the best teams together. I work with my teams, my COO, my chief of staff, um, my um, executive assistant, my HR director, my fine. I have the best team ever. So it makes my job easier and so much fun. Awesome.
0: Okay. So I think we've gotten through all the big questions. So now we're going to go into our rapid fire questions. So just one, you know, one sentence, one word answers um and we'll see what you come up with.
1: Oh, yeah, I'm getting anxious. Yeah, yeah but I'm ready.
0: <laughs> all right. Okay. So first question. What keeps you up at night professionally?
1: Keeping my best people.
0: If you could completely switch careers, do something totally unrelated, what would it be?
1: Right, be an author, publish
0: what do you think the biggest challenge facing women today is? Equity, pay equity,
1: uh, caregiving, and I think thinking of ourselves as women rather than sometimes just people, you know, uh, and you know, you kind of put an extra burden on yourself. It's always been a beauty for me. I'm like, I'm so glad I'm a woman. I'm so glad I'm a Black woman. Um, I feel like those are my gifts, and so I. I I'll turn the question around and say, I would love to see women embrace their femininity and embrace being a woman rather than looking at it as, as a woman, I have to blah, 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 rather than I'm so glad I'm a woman and that allows me to X, Y, and Z.
0: What is your greatest strength?
1: I'm compassionate and I have great empathy.
0: Another pattern I see amongst people I interview, love that. (laughs) Biggest weakness?
1: I am the most impatient person ever.
0: Okay, another similarity you and I have. (laughs) Uh (laughs) Um, They call my nickname is Veruca Salt. I want everything. Ah! (laughs) Um, What is one skill set you wish you had that you don't?
1: I wish I was uh, more detail oriented.
0: And what is your actionable advice for those listening? One takeaway that you want people to hear.
1: Do you and embrace it. Just do you and embrace every part of who you are. Like I refuse to use words like be your authentic self, bring your authentic, I just refuse to do that, but like know who you are, embrace who you are and leverage who you are.
0: And lastly, what does success mean to you? Seeing other people succeed. All right. Well, I think that is it. I think we finished um, our interview. And I'm just going to say this again. The fact that you took the time to do this, you are a force. You are such an inspiration. I am so excited to put this out. Um, Thank you so, so, so much. I can't wait for uh, my listeners to hear your story. And I have, you know... And all of these interviews, you know, I hope to just learn one great thing. And I feel like I've just been so blessed to talk to such incredible women and I've learned so much from you today. So Lisa, thank you, thank you, thank you.
1: Thank you, thank you, thank you for creating a platform, for recognizing the need for the platform, um, for making it so easy and fun to engage. And um, I, this is not gonna be the last time we talk, I promise. Thank you again. Awesome. Awesome. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you.